Andrew Faust here, Permaculture Perspectives. Today, it's a beautiful spring day, so I'm broadcasting from our porch at the center, looking out to the south, where we have ponds with ducks and geese with baby goslings, and listening to the sound of spring coming with all of the bird songs, all of the sun starting to come down in large quantities and helping the trees to all leaf out. My theme for today is going to build on what I've coined as my own definition of permaculture. You know, I think most permaculture teachers have their own definition, so not that unusual in that I have one. Uh, I do, of course, think that mine is particularly unique, so I hope you'll follow along with me and enjoy this outline of, broadly speaking, how do I define what is permaculture design. And I like to contextualize that and say that my answer to the question goes a little more into detail and points to this uh, perspective of how and what is permaculture design in the Northeastern Corridor. How do we do it and what it is here is unique. It's different than what it is and how it looks in different climates and geographies. It's unique. That's part of what makes permaculture better than industrial homogenizing landscapes. Because what permaculture witnesses and recognizes is that everything and every place on the planet is sacred, is profoundly unique, and requires many generations of experience to be well understood. We need to spend more time outside, that's for sure. We're in a culture that it's estimated 50% of us humans on Earth these days live in cities. And of those people living in these high-density petropolises, 90% of their time is spent indoors. And so part of our goal with the Center for Bioregional Living here in the outlying areas, the hinterlands of New York City, is to be relevant to the city population and help people who want to come and have a connection with nature be in a place where they can really see what it's like to have animals around you that provide you with eggs and provide you with milk and provide you with meat and have plants around you that are right at hand that are providing you with incredible salads and incredible casseroles and storage carrots. And my definition of permaculture for this cold climate highly urbanized northeastern corridor is to retrofit the infrastructure to be more regionally self-reliant in ways that are ecologically intelligent, that are socially responsible, and that are prosperous for many generations to come. And what I mean by that is by ecologically intelligent, I mean that they are adaptive and tuned to the watersheds, to the hydrologies, to the native plant and animal communities where they are. How we farm, what we farm, 
how we live, needs to be attuned to the places where we are farming and the places where we live. And retrofitting the infrastructure is a specific way of pointing our attention to some of the systemic realities that, in my assessment, need to shift very dramatically in order for what we're doing as farmers and as growers to really be something that is providing healthy food. Many of the landscapes where people farm are actually highly polluted. And much of the air and water of this country is highly polluted. And it's important that we realize the purpose behind my saying we need to retrofit the infrastructure is so that we begin to design with permaculture new modes of producing electricity that are decentralized based on renewable systems, a mosaic of them that's regionally unique. And this is one of the themes today that I'm going to break out on and go a little more in depth into, and in particular one of my favorites, which is anaerobic digesters and biogas as a key component in that renewable energy retrofit infrastructure for the Northeastern Corridor. And what that's really looking like from a social perspective is initially a collaborative team of permaculture designers and watershed thinkers and people who really care about the local landscape get together and create a bit of a master plan that then we bring to community meetings and go through a participatory design process where we create several iterations of a layout for the watershed, a layout that says where shall we produce renewable energy and of what sorts and how much at present energy do people in this watershed consume? And where shall we produce and grow fuel wood and building materials in this area? And how much do people in this area consume in the way of building materials? And can we think of ways to design buildings that are more based on things that can be grown locally? And thirdly, how do we produce food for the local community in this area? Where should we be doing that? What types of food crops? And at present, how much food do people in this area consume? And where is it coming from? And what types of crops? And which ones make sense to produce locally? And which ones shall we still be importing? And what things locally could we produce beautiful extra amounts of that we could also be sharing with the surrounding communities? We need to rebuild local economies to be robust, diversified, and resilient. At present, they are single function with very few spokes in the wheel and not at all the mainstay of how people's needs are being met, meaning the global long-distance transportation import-export economy is still how most people in the G20 and in the United States, and in particular in the Northeastern Corridor, are getting their food, are getting their building materials, are getting pretty much everything that they consume in the consumer society is coming from quite far afield. We must collectively design economies that are regionally suited socially appropriate 
and ecologically adaptive. Insofar as we compromise air, water, and soil quality, and inflict illness from contamination on ourselves, we are not advanced. We are not intelligent. We must involve and evolve ways of living that enhance the health of all people. And part of how we do this is by retrofitting the infrastructure to be more regionally self-reliant. And one of the key leverage points to doing this is to make sure that all of our active systems, systems like electrical generation and power supply and heat and fuel loads, those active systems that require usually a good amount of effort and input to be generated and harvested, need to be nested in passive systems, need to be supported by a design layout that first takes into account how do we cut down on the need for active systems? How do we diminish the need for fuel to provide us with our cooking materials? Could we provide the fuel for our cooking material, in fact, from an on-site decomposition anaerobic digester that is a passive system and requires no active generation of anything because it is simply collecting the gas from the decomposition of farm wastes. Now this, in China, is powering at present 40 million homes. So to underscore that, in China there are 30,000 biogas digesters that are home scale, many of which are fueled by as few animals as two cows, or in some instances seven pigs, or perhaps you want to have a meat and an egg laying farm with chickens, and there we're seeing somewhere in the neighborhood of 170 birds powering an entire home. If you combine that with the gray water, black water, and a garbage disposal with two cows, you can power several homes because what the biogas is used for is to actually generate electricity. And while I'm on this theme, let me share with you that biogas digesters also solve fecal coliform and E. coli problems in failing septic and leach fields. And that is because the digester will, in fact, absorb and turn into food that creates methane by microbes eating it, all of the fecal coliform and E. coli that ends up getting into surface water and groundwater because of these unused nutrient loads that are coming out of people's septic tanks and going into their leach fields, which cannot handle the nutrient volume. What a biodigester as a replacement for a septic tank would offer to solve this problem is that, in fact, it is a nutrient digester that will eat the fecal and the E. coli with microbes, who will then produce methane that then you can run that at present I'm exploring running a tankless hot water heater so I can run my entire house domestic hot water from a septic tank. We can build houses for clients that have biodigesters as a primary source of energy and then another secondary source that's passive that we are fond of is solar thermal hot water that goes into a slab that is the foundation of the house, which is at grade. This way we avoid basements where we get into sub pumps and lots of active energy systems often 
keeping them dry in a region that is generally very wet and has a high water table. That is the northeast with much of its limestone geology due to the Appalachian ridgeline and its character. And so as we bring biogas into the mix in the United States, we can solve a number of problems that right now are looked at as really irreconcilable when I go to watershed meetings, when I go to municipal gatherings that are discussing how can we really address what's going on with this fecal and E. coli issue, the most forward-thinking idea is that we're going to suddenly go around and pump everybody's septic tank more regularly. And that certainly is an important interim measure. But in the long run, as septic tanks fail and need to be replaced, we need to be implementing biogas technology, both because it's part of a renewable infrastructure that just makes good design sense and because it solves a water pollution problem. Let me give you a specific example of the scalability of this and where biogas is used on a municipal scale, how much energy it can produce. So I've been reading a book called Power to the People about how Burlington, Vermont, became 100% renewable. And in that book, Greg Paul went to a facility in Des Moines, Iowa, that is the Metro Waste Water Reclamation Authority. This facility is one of the most ambitious, large-scale biogas operations in the country. The WRA serves a population of 500,000 people. It treats 36 billion gallons of wastewater a year from 16 municipalities. In 2009, the WRA generated 460 million cubic yards of biogas by co-digesting 26 million gallons of organic waste produced by regional businesses. It is trucked to six huge digesters, each 2.7 million gallon capacity. They fuel three to 600 watt co-generation units, producing 8 million kilowatts of electricity. It also fires three dual fuel biogas or natural gas builders for all the building's heats on the compound. 40% of the biogas that they generate is sold to Cargill, which sits right next door to the biogas facility. Dane County is causing the Rotafield landfill methane to go to a generator and a CNG fueling station developed for their own patent-pending biogas conditioning technology fueling a local fleet of cars, the first of its kind in the nation. They make $3.5 million a year selling electricity, the Dade County Rotafield landfill that is. So to back up and go over that once more, slow it down for you. We're talking about a landfill that's been capped that takes the methane and scrubs it and cleans it and puts it into this unique technology that they innovated that enables them to fuel cars with it. It behaves just like compressed natural gas, but instead you're solving a climate change problem. You're taking methane, which is a waste gas, and you're turning it into a fuel source to power transportation. The city of New York, it turns out, has also done something similar to this with the Fresh Kills landfill where in fact they also scrub the methane emitted from the landfill 
send it through a pipe to a power plant where they run a generator off of the methane gas and they sell electricity to people in Staten Island to the tune of a profit of $23 million a year. And so, in fact, just as a quick comparison, no nuclear power plant in the country has ever made a profit. All of them are on the dole from the taxpayers in the form of subsidies. We give them millions of dollars every year so those monstrosity ticking time bombs can stay in our neighborhoods. Those need to be shut down, decommissioned, and replaced with a diversified mosaic of renewables. And that is the work of the next several generations. And it's coming. It's where we are training you up in our permaculture programs to be on the cutting edge as an entrepreneur who is solving these problems by creating true, resilient systems for people to enjoy the bounty of this planet by adapting more wisely to where they are and paying attention more simply to who we are. So thanks for listening today. Hope those ideas are inspiring and that you reach out and ask me any questions that you have about how we can move these visions forward of creating a more collective and healthy future for all of our children through all time. Thank you and enjoy your day on earth. Jolly, we're all done. Go ahead, you can start over. Okay. Haul and tow. Jolly, we're below. We were off long before the day of. To welcome in the summer, to welcome in the May of. The summer is coming and the winter's gone away. Haul and tow. Jolly, we're below. We were off long before the May, oh. The summer is coming and the winter's gone away, oh. All in tow, jolly down below. We were off long before the May, oh. Summer is coming and the winter's gone away, oh. All in tow, jolly down below. We were off long before the May, oh. To welcome in the summer, to welcome in the May, oh. The summer is coming and the winter's gone away, oh. All in tow, jolly run below. We were long before the day, oh. To welcome in the summer, to welcome in the May, oh. The summer is coming and the winter's gone away, oh. All in tow, jolly run below. We were off long before the May, oh. To welcome in the summer, to welcome in the May, oh. The summer, summer is a coming and the winter's gone, gone away, away oh.